Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. When we think of Clive Staples Lewis, more commonly known as C.S. Lewis, we usually think first of the Chronicles of Narnia. Following close behind is Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, the Great Divorce, and the Abolition of Man. Perhaps Surprised by Joy or The Four Loves are on your list of C.S. Lewis favorites. Why is C.S. Lewis so popular? Why do many Lutherans find Lewis's writing so appealing? Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Academy is pleased to once again host Tuesdays with Tolman, which is a summer seminar in praise of rhetorical studies. In past summers, Dr. Tolman and seminar attendees have discussed Aristotle's works and Richard M. Weaver's writings, among other things. This summer, Dr. Tolman is bringing in some friends for the discussion. As suggested by the introductory remarks, this summer's Tuesdays with Tolman is taking up C.S. Lewis, specifically C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Joining me today is the main host of Tuesdays with Tallman, Dr. James Tallman. Dr. Tallman teaches rhetoric at Wittenberg Academy. He is also the author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Dr. Tallman, thank you for joining me today on the Wittenberg Hour. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's all my pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Before we get into C.S. Lewis, Dr. Tallman, first tell me about Tuesdays with Tallman. Why is it important to keep the study of rhetoric at the fore? Or ask differently, why does rhetoric matter, especially today? Well, rhetoric matters, especially today. That's because the art of listening critically to one another with empathy thoughtfully reflecting on what's been said and then responding with mutual respect is almost entirely lost in this rough and tumble uh, public discourse that we have today. But that's the present cultural kind of need for rhetorical studies. Classically speaking, rhetoric has traditionally been understood as the capstone of liberal arts education because learning to be wise and eloquent is the aim of liberal arts education. And rhetoric is also highly implicated in cultivating character in students. Who needs rhetoric? Perhaps that's just uh, a, a way of expanding on, on what you just said. I'm thinking of our, our present context in terms of, of what's going on in the world. And, and so the question of, of who needs rhetoric, is it only the, the politicians? Is it only the educated? Who needs rhetoric? Well, as I'm sure you already realize, it'd be much simpler to identify who does not need rhetoric. <laughs> sure. And I would simply say 
those who live in a totalitarian regime do not need rhetoric. Those who have no faith do not need rhetoric because rhetoric is used extensively in scripture, especially in Pauline epistles. Those who have no aspirations to be leaders in their community do not need rhetoric. Those who will never set foot in a pulpit don't need rhetoric. Well, you know, actually I have to take that back. <laughs> they need rhetoric quite often in their relationships, in their interaction with people within their community, within their community. So people who are hermits, who will never be involved or engaged in a community, don't need rhetoric. I think you get the idea. Yeah, that's fantastic. So thinking about our place um, as, as Christians in this world, the fact that, that we are called to relationship, right? You know, the table of duties lays that out for us. Everything in there all of the ways that we love and serve our neighbor, that is all relationship. Absolutely. The law and the prophets are all summed up in this, that we love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourselves. I would encourage everyone to consider sitting at the feet of Dr. Tallman. He teaches a series of three rhetoric courses for Wittenberg Academy, especially if you have a high school student. I would highly recommend considering Dr. Tullman's rhetoric classes. Now to the topic at hand. This summer, Tuesdays with Tullman is taking on C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. The Space Trilogy consists of Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. The first book, Out of the Silent Planet, was published in 1938. Paralandra and That Hideous Strength were published in 1943 and 1948, respectively. Now, as my scholars attest, I am big on context. What was going on while C.S. Lewis was writing his space trilogy? Let's recall, first of all, that C.S. Lewis was writing in jolly old England. But in 1938, England wasn't all that jolly. In fact, Europe was on the verge of World War II. In 1943, the Allied and Axis powers were in full fight, and Winston Churchill was busy saving England from the Nazis. C.S. Lewis himself had experienced war as a soldier in World War I, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars. In 1948, England was recovering from the ravages of World War II, which had been won by the Allied powers. Okay, just thinking about the context of the space trilogy in which C.S. Lewis was writing. 1945 was when That Hideous Strength was published. It was actually written right at the close of World War II. In my understanding of the history of ideas, Hiroshima signaled the abrupt end of the enlightenment hope that we could experience better living through science. It was the natural extension of that mindset, which had been followed for 200 years, that if we just amass enough knowledge, 
and utilize science and reason, we can solve the world's problems. Uh, that came to an abrupt halt, as I said, with the bomb and uh, the disillusionment that followed gave birth to postmodernity. And so I uh, think that Lewis was writing in that spirit. He captured the spirit of the times and that hideous strength in particular taps into what Dwight Eisenhower said in his farewell address was the dangers of the military industrial complex. And so the whole idea of the merging of political power and will and propaganda and uh, unbridled scientific progress would result in some pretty hideous and strong tendencies that would have dire cultural consequences. What is the danger of pursuing progress without the restraint of the ethical strictures, and we talked about um, this, that are the fruit of a classical education? Yeah, well, I think the, the question entails the answer that the ethical moorings that are cultivated and strengthened in the classical liberal arts education are what's needed to balance the demands of progress and the machine that can be created that chews up and destroys the cogs therein uh, in modern life and uh, you saw that in the industrial age as well and so learning those humane qualities that ought to be always born in mind never violated and the imago dei that human beings are created in god's image and are special creatures therefore and have special status in creation and need to be dealt with and treated in that fashion um, they can get overrun by progress especially when progress is unfettered and unencumbered by the morality that we inherit in the Western tradition, in the Judeo-Christian tradition in particular. That hideous strength, that title is, is rather large in terms of uh, all it encompasses. How, how can we break that down in terms of understanding? Is, why is the strength hideous? Well, Jocelyn, that's a great question. And I think that I'm going to rely on Jean Edward Veith's Postmodern Times to draw a little bit of the cultural critique that he offers in that book to bring to bear on that hideous strength because it is related and it is related to, as I mentioned before, Eisenhower's warning about the industri military industrial complex. And what Lewis was warning about was a hideous program 
in which human beings would be in a very efficient and a very powerful way chewed up alive and sacrificed on the altar of progress and science. And it was the logical extension or the reductio ad absurdum actually of the enlightenment project that ultimately leads to the destruction of humanity. And it also entails the reduction of humanity to machines or animals or less. And it's so strong because it's the power of government combined with the power of propaganda combined with the power of money through research institutions like the NICE in that hideous strength and ultimately power from the pit of hell, the destroyer, the liar. That's a sobering thought. And especially thinking about the fact that we live post Lewis, that seemingly we are living in the times about which he was warning. And we look around and we see these very things. We, we see the, the strength and the power of these entities you just mentioned. Is there hope? Well, anyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of Richard M. Weaver. And Weaver, like Lewis, he died the same year Lewis died. Um, he was very prophetic in his cultural critique. And a lot of what I just said about the Imago Dei and how we have to preserve a vision, an elevated vision of humanity uh, so that, for example, our approach to education is robust and in keeping with this, the elevated status of humanity so that human excellence is our aim. And the fruit of that is good leaders, good lawgivers, good judges, good pastors, and so forth, uh, good mothers. And of course, liberal arts education is one of the primary solutions to that tendency to place everything else as a priority uh, other than the ideals that I just mentioned. Now, I mentioned Weaver because Weaver said because of the denigration of education and social life and culture in the 1950s and 60s that we needed to be ever vigilant to keep ourselves inoculated against and safe from the tendencies in our society and in the intelligentsia that would lead to uh, uh, denuded 
vision of humankind. And his final collection of essays that was published posthumously is called Visions of Order, the Cultural Crisis of Our Time. He, and he has some very good uh, reflections there on the need for an elevated understanding of, of humankind and how, to, how imperative it is that we preserve that. And he says in a number of his essays that at the very time we need to be ever vigilant and understand what is the problem with that way of thinking, we are peculiarly unqualified to exercise that kind of discernment. And so it's really important that we keep fighting the fight in classical Christian liberal arts education and that we understand the nature of the task at hand, but the outcome is not guaranteed. The only outcome that's guaranteed is Christ will return and he's in control and he will be victorious and ultimately we win but it appears to me that we're in the midst of the battle right now and things are unraveling as yates says in the second coming the center no longer holds in america at least so there's a lot to do and i think rhetoric and dialectic and the works of c.s lewis are highly implicated in the solutions that we'll find for this dilemma. So I pray every day and I challenge my students all the time to take up this task and uh, by the grace of God, march forward. Dr. Tolman, you have some friends joining you for this summer's Tuesdays with Tolman. Would you talk about them and, and maybe even give us some background in terms of how we came to this idea of discussing, uh, reading and discussing the Space Trilogy? Well, the story of the conception of holding this uh, discussion of the Space Trilogy is kind of fun because it just came up in Pastor Rene Castellero's Facebook thread um, about C.S. Lewis. We were talking one day and I think I suggested, hey, it'd be really fun to have a summer book club kind of discussion of the Space Trilogy. And a lot of people jumped right on that idea. And so Pastor Castellero offered to organize it. And he eventually got uh, myself and Reverend Brandon Coble from Wisconsin involved and Dr. Jean Edward Veith. So we divvied out the work amongst us. I'm going to take up the caboose and discuss that hideous strength. Dr. Veith will discuss Paralandra because it's very literary and that's his wheelhouse. And Reverend Coble, who has taught C.S. Lewis as a lecturer at Marquette University, is going to uh, kick off the series with his discussion of Out of the Silent Planet. So we uh, decided to do it that way, and we asked Mrs. Benson if Wittenberg Academy would be interested in hosting, and being the gracious people they are, they decided to do that. 
And not only that, they decided to uh, re invite people to participate at no cost. So we, we appreciate you a great deal, Jocelyn. Well, it's, it's our pleasure. As we ponder this urgency that we discussed a couple of minutes ago, giving the church, really, as I, as I look at the sign-up list for those who are, are registered to participate in Tuesdays with Tallman this summer, really, this is a service to the church. We have clergy, we have laymen, um, we have Lutherans, we have non-Lutherans. And so this is, is really an exciting opportunity to, to do and to participate in the very, uh, the very thing that we were discussing earlier. Why in particular does this series support the study of rhetorical studies or, or the participation in rhetorical studies? Well, on the one hand, it really doesn't. We just utilize the time frame that we had available because we have an annual event. Actually, there are two annual events that Wittenberg Academy has kindly offered to host that aim to revive interest in the rhetorical arts. They are Tuesdays with Tallman, which happens every summer, and then every fall, it's reflecting on rhetoric over Rioja. Rioja is a particularly delicious brand of red wine from Spain, and it's the place where Quintilian grew up. And Quintilian was a contemporary of St. Paul. And so I have in my novel, I have them meeting in Spain and discussing rhetoric, ethics, pedagogy, the faith, and so on. But that, that little meeting is fun and it's more adult and it's kind of just, you know, a celebration of rhetoric and all things rhetorical. Tuesdays with Tallman, we switch out the theme every year. And as a matter of fact, I was in communication with Reverend Castellero talking about those aspects of rhetorical studies that would be of most interest to him because I was going to tailor my teaching this summer to his interest because he's really gotten enthused about studying rhetoric. And so when the idea emerged kind of organically on Facebook about discussing the space trilogy, we just decided to utilize the slots that were already available this summer and then expand it a little bit and in, invite some of my friends to help out. And that's how it came into being, and that's what it's about. It's not really expressly attached to the study of rhetoric, but I guarantee you those themes will emerge in every of the three works because C.S. Lewis writes a lot about communication and communication. Well, let me just put it this way. I think this is interesting, and I'll leave it at this because I don't want to steal Reverend Coble's thunder. But the reason it's referred to as the silent planet was because there was no communication out into the galaxy beyond our moon. So Tellus was referred to as the silent planet. And there are a lot of implications of that. Here's another little teaser. 
on Paralandra, the primary uh, character whose name is Ransom, encounters an evil one trying to hypnotize and brainwash an innocent inhabitant of Paralandra. The way that happens is through talk, 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 talk. Ransom falls asleep. He wakes up and the evil one is in her ear talking, talking, talking. And you get the idea, I think. It reminds one a lot of social media and the influence it has. So there are some communication implications there for sure. That brings us beautifully to my next question for you. We live in a different context than C.S. Lewis. We're not in the throes of or recovery from a world war. Why is the space trilogy still relevant today? You said that the first book was published in 1938. That's the same year Kristallnacht happened. Goebbels was the minister of propaganda. There was no possibility of dissenting opinion in Germany for years and years and years, even prior to World War II. Lewis paid attention in his trilogy and worked into his trilogy a treatment of the role of propaganda in bending people's will toward evil. That's universal. That's an enduring problem. What is the relation of propaganda to rhetoric? Because some in our world today, they use the word rhetoric to refer to propaganda. Is this a correct use? In the, Not in the my book. book. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I refer to that very dichotomy every time I teach a new class. I take up that theme and I use Hitler specifically as an illustration of the, I mean, from an academic point of view, the heresy that rhetoric is an amoral tool, which makes Hitler a prime example of rhetorical excellence, right? Because he swayed a whole nation to do evil to kill six million Jews. There are a lot of reasons why that presupposition is flawed, and I don't want to get into those right now, but maybe we can discuss them over the summer. But I argue that rhetoric is ethical all the way down. Take, for example, persuasion versus coercion. When you want to influence somebody, you have basically two choices. You can persuade them through reason, discourse, and mutual respect and, and trust in your word and your insight and the truth that you are promulgating. You can persuade the other with respect to their freedom. If you want to do that in a more, if you want to, if you want to influence their behavior, in a more efficient way, you can just hold a gun to their head and make them do what you want them to do. So from that dichotomy, the persuasion-coercion dichotomy, 
rhetoric as an art of persuading the other with respect to his freedom and out of concern for his uh, soul. I'm Christianizing it now, of course. Of course. But out of concern for my neighbor's good and his soul and with an aim toward moving him toward the good, rhetoric is ethical all the way down. The very choice to persuade the other versus coercing them is an ethical posture itself. So I could go on and on, and I do, believe me. Every every course I teach, I have long threads of discussion about why rhetoric is ethical all the way down because I'm trying to dilute the presupposition that it's an amoral tool like a gun that can be used for good or evil. And I would just say the fact that we have words like demagoguery, bombast, sophistry, and so forth suggests that there are kinds of influence that people exercise by means of language that are unethical, that utilize exaggeration, fear appeals, falsifying facts, false testimony, and so forth for ignoble ends, like in order to win, in order to make money, in order to exercise political control, and so forth. Those I don't call rhetoric. Rhetoric is very much like, from, from my traditional viewpoint, and I am joined in this, by the way, with Weaver, Quintilian, Cicero, Aristotle. They all held that you ought not lie to others, you ought not warp the soul of your hearers, you need to speak the truth with respect to their good. All of those kinds of ethical positions are wrapped up in speaking the truth in love to my neighbor. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm thinking of all the different things that, that we need to get together on on the Wittenberg Hour to discuss. <laughs> I think we could, could fill hours <laughs> and hours on, on these different topics. In this world where especially young people, but also um, anyone, you know, over the age of 18 also, if they are involved in social media, and even if they just watch the evening news, right? This urgency to understand the messages that are coming toward them and how rhetorical studies can aid them in, in deciphering, in identifying these messages that are coming at them because of that very idea of, of moral and ethical that it's not neutral. The reason rhetoric was considered the capstone of a liberal arts education and the reason why rhetorical studies are not really age appropriate for the, the wee ones. Of course, you can, you know, introduce them to sing song, rhyme scheme, figures of speech and that sort of thing. Yes, the, the invention part of rhetorical arts that we use to compose verse and to enjoy beauty in language and that sort of thing. Those are aspects of rhetoric that are uh, age appropriate for the young ones. But as a child enters the dialectical phase and starts to question presuppositions and is precocious, as Dorothy Sayers says, and likes to 
argue about things. But then ultimately, as the child starts to form his or her own opinion and learns to exercise his or her voice and to assimilate all of the lessons on a deeper level, on a philosophical and theological level that have been learned, um, rhetoric helps order their loves. It helps them decipher why they believe what they believe and why they love what is good, right, and salutary and what makes it good, right, and salutary. And conversely, they can hear better because they have ears to hear and eyes to see spiritual truths and also the warning lights that go off when they're confronted with error that's been dressed up to um, to be attractive, although false. I'd like to read you something from my bookmark that I've been using as I've read through the trilogy the last several days. Parents are not free to do with their children as they please. They are entrusted with parental authority that they may train up their offspring for society and the church. And they are held to a strict account for the manner in which they discharge this duty. For if we wish to have proper and excellent persons, both for civil and ecclesiastical government, we must spare no diligence, time or cost in teaching and educating our children that they may serve God and the world. And you know that's from Martin Luther because it's off the back side of your bookmark. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And this is why we do what we do, right? Yes. Most people would not consider oratory, for example, a fine art. Can you give a defense of that? Why should we consider rhetoric, rhetorical studies, oratory? Why should we consider that a fine art? Sure. It was a specific claim I was making, um, Jocelyn. I wouldn't say rhetoric writ large should be considered a fine art. Within rhetorical studies and rhetorical endeavors, I would like to revive a perception of oratory as a fine art on the on the level of a music performance, a recital, etc. So when we have a celebration of student oratory, there is a composition being celebrated. And that composition is supposed to be true and good and beautiful. It is supposed to move the souls of the auditors. And that's what we aim at on the senior level of rhetorical studies. Oratory is the capstone of the capstone of rhetoric within liberal arts education. And I approach that oratory assignment in rhetoric level three as a senior thesis, more or less. Okay. And um, it's supposed to, well, actually they have a think piece that's assigned after they do the oratory that's supposed to reflect on all of the lessons they've learned in rhetoric one, which is foundational, rhetoric two, which covers argumentation and debate, and rhetoric three, which covers imagination, style, and cultivating one's voice. 
So that package and that context is supposed to equip them for excellence in oratorical speaking that aims to inspire people to move their souls and show them better versions of themselves. I don't think I have to elaborate anymore on the value of that. You brought up the concept of imagination, and C.S. Lewis certainly rouses the imagination, right, in, in, his, <laughs> in his different books. Why is the ability to rouse the imagination or move the imagination, why is that important? Because, as Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. I'm just going to let that work for a second. That's a radical thing to say, but especially when you consider the source. Albert Einstein said that. And let me just say on a very personal level, this morning I was eating breakfast and having coffee and finishing up Paralandra. And this is a note I wrote. The framework C.S. Lewis imagineers in which he recasts the redemption story on an interplanetary scale is breathtaking. The amplification he utilizes to describe Martian and Venusian landscapes and seascapes, flora and fauna, all of which are beyond human reckoning, is without par parallel. But the way Lewis reframes theology, especially in Paralandra, chapters 16 and 17, you're welcome, Dr. Veith. Theology, that, that framework that he imagineers, makes me weep for its sheer genius. That speaks to the importance of imagination, I think. It really is tied up. The more I teach it and the more I think about it, it's really tied up in having ears to hear and eyes to see spiritual truth. This is something, especially today, where there seems to be a dulling or a deadening of the imagination. Neglect. A neglect. I like that word. Yes. A neglect of the imagination. Can the imagination be killed? You know it can. Also, I might say, and I think this is important for homeschool parents and classical educators to understand, love of wisdom can be killed. That's why I think Luther, who was certainly familiar with those who would kill his love of wisdom and his imagination by just stupefying and overbearing and deadening detail and and minutia he called when he wrote about education he called it child's play quite often i don't think he was talking about we need to make an environment in the classroom that's filled with frivolity i don't think that was it at all i think he was trying to cultivate love of of knowledge and joy and joy and learning and we see that in in C.S. Lewis's most famous series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Do we see that same theme, imagination, 
is there, I mean, the, the space trilogy is, is pretty heavy, right? Um, in terms of, of everything that, that we're pondering as we read the space trilogy, is there a playfulness at all? Or does imagination not necessarily have to fall in the, the realm of playfulness? That's a good question because there is certainly intellectual play in the space trilogy. But I, I think what moves me to tears, and I wasn't exaggerating when I wrote that, but what moves me to tears is just watching Lewis at work. First of all, his descriptions and his explanations of the inexplicable are breathtaking. But then to watch him at the apex of the story that happens on Paralandra, the recasting of the redemption story in a completely different world is sheer genius. I myself have a difficult time explaining and putting into words because the brilliance of it is almost beyond comprehension. It is a gift of God. That theme of redemption seems to come up frequently in in Lewis's writing. And, you know, as as classical educators, that's one of those universals that we that we see in in the things that we teach. So that's a, a neat way to bring that all together. Yeah, well, when I taught my seventh and eighth graders at Trinity Lutheran Church and School in Cheyenne, Wyoming, we had the best time reading through the Space Trilogy. Uh, we never made it through all three. In fact, I challenged them to read that hideous strength at home over the summer. We made it through Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, and it was just fantastic. And I did writing exercises with my students based on Lewis's explanations of the inexplicable. And I challenged them to try to learn the art of explaining things for which there is no frame of reference on earth. You know, so we, we had some pretty clever and interesting short stories come out of that. And, you know, you asked a while back about the cultivation of imagination and excellence and stuff. Number one, seventh and eighth graders did just fine with that kind of abstraction. And number two, they loved it. And I loved teaching it to them. I want to put in a plug for the abolition of man before we move on. Absolutely. Every educator, whether they formally educate or educate just by virtue of their vocation as mother, father, as pastor, everyone should read The Abolition of Man, without question. Yeah, Lewis discusses pragmatism as education after the fashion of the Green Book. The Green Book was a popular teaching text in his day, and one of the main points he makes is that imagination, cultivation of imagination, had no place in education after the fashion of the Green Book. Why might Lutherans in particular enjoy C.S. Lewis's space trilogy? Some Lutherans are suspicious of C.S. Lewis because he was an Anglican and 
he raises questions in a lot of people's minds. The the space trilogy in particular, I would hope would interest Lutherans for the way that as I've been raving about really for the duration of this podcast, it recasts the redemption story, raising the possibility that there are different ways God has worked his purposes in different worlds, but with all the same spiritual implications throughout and identical orthodox issues at stake. So Lewis was very cautious about coming off as either idolatrous or heretical in playing with the idea of the redemption story on an interplanetary scale. But to see how he manages that and then to refer back to our own theology and play it off what Lewis was up to, I think is a pretty good intellectual exercise. And then the imagination speaks for itself. But honestly, Lutherans don't cultivate their imagination all that much. But they should because, for goodness sake, the mysteries that we embrace in the Lord's Supper, in our understanding of sacraments, uh, are profound. When you approach the Lord's table in remembrance of Him, you're engaging all of your faculties and your memory, your sanctified memory, and your imagination. And I don't know about you, but I imagine the host of heaven and, and all that when I'm, uh, when I'm taking the Lord's body and blood and I try to really focus my whole being on, um, on his sacrifice on the cross. If you neglect that aspect of what we do and that approach is quintessential Lutheran spirituality. That brings to mind Dr. Arthur Just's book, Heaven on Earth. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever read that, but capturing that vision of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven communing there with you is, is just a, a beautiful image and, and something as we are in the church militant that we cling to as those who have gone before us in the faith, knowing that when we are at the Lord's table, there we are with them. Yes. And and that is a... Yeah, I think we really appreciate that. But to the extent that a person cultivates imagination and understands the value of imagination and understands the role of a sanctified imagination within true Christian worship and practices, one's faith is enriched and vice versa. If we neglect that, all that we've been talking about, Jocelyn, if we neglect that, we don't have as rich a faith walk as we might have had, had we been educated in that fashion. Dr. Tallman, this has been a wonderful time together at the Wittenberg Hour. I appreciate all the work you do for the scholars of Wittenberg Academy and for the church at large as you as you promote the love of eloquence 
and the importance of rhetorical studies. We are truly grateful and indebted to you. Jocelyn, I do a fraction of what you do to advance this cause. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tallman. It is certainly a joy to serve. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as not to miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at www.wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Be sure to join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour. <laughs>